Welcome to the Cybersecurity Defenders Podcast, Episode 30. My name is Christopher Luft. I'm one of the co-founders of Lima Charlie, and I will be your host. On today's episode, we speak with Dr. Anton Shuvakin, Security Advisor for the Office of the CISO at Google Cloud. Hello, Dr. Shuvakin. Thanks for being on the show today. Hello there. Thanks for inviting me. To get things started, please introduce yourself and tell us what you do. Well, uh, my name is Anton Chuvakin, and I work for Office of the CISO at Google Cloud, which isn't a very precise description, admittedly, but I deal with you know, a broad range of things connected to security operations, data security, cloud security, obviously. I advise clients, I do some research, and of course, I inform the internal teams uh, when they listen to me. Looking at your CV, it appears you've spent more than two decades in the cybersecurity field. It must have been rather niche at the time when you started. What was it that attracted you to it as a practice? Well, uh, it's uh, at the time when I started, I was uh, actually studying physics. And as I sometimes humorously say, uh, I felt physics is just too simple, so I should do something more challenging. But uh, no, I didn't really think that at the time. I, it sort of happened by almost by accident. I was helping out with system administration and a lot of machines, uh, actually Linux machines at the time were getting popped by what in the 1990s lingo was called script cages. Of course, now the term is largely out of use. And then I started seeing, you know, what's being done, how it's being done. And then I started thinking that we, sh- we can do more to defend our systems at the time. And so it sort of started as a minor side job, maybe, but ended up being a more of an obsession. And then uh, the rest is history. Very cool. Your career also started around when the dot-com bubble popped. For people listening who may not know, that's the single biggest widespread technology stock collapse in history, kind of like what we're seeing now, but, you know, two or three times worse. What were you doing at the time and what was the landscape like? Oh, you're really trying to dredge up my memory of, of a time long gone. Uh, so funny enough, I, I did have uh, sort of my, my first proper cybersecurity job definitely started kind of in the middle of the dot-com crash. And at the time, I very quickly lost lost my job because uh, <laughs> ultimately I was doing security research. And at the time, uh, if you are in the middle of the dot-com crash, you start thinking maybe security research isn't that important. But ultimately, um, when I found my next job, it took a while, it was with a SIM vendor. Well, at the time, uh, they weren't even called SIM vendors because there was a competing definitions of SIM and SAM. S-I-M with an I and S-E-M with an E. So I, in 2002, I started working for a SIM vendor. And that's also started my, uh, my other obsession, namely with logs and log analysis. In my research, I saw SIM sort of emerged around 2005. It sounds like you were working on it before it was widely known or? Oh, no, no, no. It was way before that because uh, I think the first three SIM vendors started in the late 90s. And okay. uh uh, and then there, you, they, they, this records vary whether it was 97 or 98 when the companies were started. Uh, names like IntelliTactics and the Forensics and a few others, they started in the very, very tail end of the 90s, maybe some 1999. So uh, very few people probably were buying SIM before the date changed to, before the date started not being numbered with two. But I think that even in 2002, there was already a, reasonable market. I think 2005 is when the when my uh, future colleagues at the time, Gartner, uh, would combine 
uh, multiple spaces because I think Gartner called it ITSM and then SIM and then SAM. I don't recall exactly. And then in 2005, I think they duct taped them, super glued them together. And that's what gave birth to SIEM, the way we spell it now, SIM. Okay, but the dude. tech existed uh, at least five years before. Right. And, and what necessitated the need for this new type of product? Was it compliance or security specifically? Oh, it predates compliance. That's actually a common, uh, I, I don't really, I haven't given many interviews on this uh, recently, but in the past, I would always kind of correct the record because SIM, the first SIM companies uh, were started before there was any obsession with compliance. Sarbanes-Oxley 2002, they predate that. PCI, definitely later. Well, sure, HIPAA existed since 1996, but ultimately security ruled it, I think, from later days. So SIM was born before there was compliance. And that's an important observation because later on, people started saying, ah, SIM is for compliance. And, and there was a, absolutely a period of time when SIM was predominantly funded by compliance and people would say used for compliance, but its birth predates the current obsession uh, with IT compliance. Okay. So it was actually six- built for security operation centers and teams that deal in, deal, dealt with false positives. I do remember vaguely remember, uh, that people talked about how IDS, intrusion detection systems, are producing too many alerts. Many of them are false positives. We need to manage alerts. So if somebody uh, wakes me up at 3 a.m. And, and the year is 2003, this is my famous 3 a.m. test. So if somebody wakes me up in 2003 at 3 a.m. and says, Anton, why does SIM exist? Uh, I would say deal with IDS alerts, deal with too many signals from security devices. That's how I would, would have described it back then. Right. As security continued to evolve, would it be fair to say the next major innovation was endpoint detection response? I mean, there was a lot of um, other things happened, right? I guess SIM SIM did start to be uh, heavily funded by compliance efforts, maybe mid-2000s, late-2000s. So the whole idea that SIM is about compliance uh, did almost like it was a view, but ultimately it was kind of heavily backed by reality. Uh, maybe in the mid-2000s. So some of the SIM vendors lost their original security you know, thinking purpose and started being about making PCI compliance, PCI auditors happy or PCI assessors happy. And so security was a little bit forgotten, right? A little bit. And then when we had to investigate, when people had to investigate, especially look deeper at the endpoint, uh, there was a need to observe the endpoint telemetry with a higher fidelity that a typical log would produce. Moreover, typical logs back at the time were not really very heavily focused on the endpoint. Like, for example, if I pick some a typical company back in early 2000s, would they have client PC or laptop logs being centralized? Probably not. So how do you investigate? Roughly when I was working at Gartner already around 2012, I started thinking that there's some kind of a market being born in the area of deeper observation of the endpoint. And because it was my job to name things, I started thinking that perhaps uh, we can call it ETDR, Endpoint Threat Detection and Response. And I was super proud of my name until the point when somebody said, but four-letter acronyms are bad, Anton. You should not do a four-letter acronyms. Uh, And of course, you know, I pointed out that CASB immediately because I think CASB was already um, in existence and people said, Asby, that's not very pleasant sounding either. So ultimately, the space became known as EDR. And uh, later on, it evolved to do more things than just 
observing the endpoint. It became about doing investigations, doing blocking. And then later on, there was a bit of a fight between EDR and so-called next-gen AV, which was a, presumably a big, uh, big question back in 2015, 14. I'm, I'm trying to go and look at my old Gartner blogs as, as I'm speaking, and I'm thinking, yeah, I remember that, uh, arguing with people who claimed that EDR is basically the future antivirus. And I was like, no, it's not a preventative tech. It's the technology to really observe rather than block. But ultimately, that was the time. Very fun times. Yeah, and in my research, I did see that you are credited as the person who progenated the term that eventually became EDR. So quite a little footnote in security history there. I guess I am now, yes. And it is kind of... Uh, I was trying to reflect on this last year, and I think the term did stick. And I think it's maybe maybe I do go down in history as as a person who put EDR on the map. After EDR, we start to see a new class of products around 2017. You know, the rise of the Security Orchestration Automation and Response, or SOAR, platform. Mm -hmm. Why did we need this class of products, and, and what problems were they solving? So, SOAR is uh, a, a very interesting story. And, of course... Uh, uh, SOAR was born at Gartner as well. The, the acronym was born at Gartner as well. So uh, the interesting bit about SOAR is what, this is what, one of the very few acronyms at Gartner otherwise, where uh, the original creator really fell in love with the word. So when SOAR was born, some of the letters, they stood for something else. It, it did not, at birth, SOAR did not stand for security orchestration, automation, and response. I can find the original one, and I think R stood for reporting. I don't recall exactly. The point is that right. people really loved the idea. And then as Gartner coined the acronym, the market was sort of not quite matching that. So eventually Gartner kept the word but changed some of the meaning, which is kind of a peculiar twist in, in, that, in that story. Now, SOAR was born ultimately as a type of technology to organize and automate workflows around security operations, but also outside of security operations. For example, if I have a SIM, uh, you may be doing some of the work in SIM. You may have, you know, tickets or cases open straight in SIM. You know, a good products, good SIM products from 15 years ago actually had an impressive but functional case, case management system, almost like a built-in ticketing. So, but they didn't have all that much automation. And by automation, I mean, right, a playbook to take action, elevate it to a human, have human take action, put it back to the machines, process something, then maybe block an attack or block or reconfigure something. This was, in theory, SIM should be able to do some of that, but it just wasn't a good fit. So SOAR was born to sort of organize this type of automation orchestration layer. And the original SOAR vendors, which I, I think is Phantom after all, I, I, I don't want to... I don't want to authoritatively claim that, but uh, I, I think Phantom was the first SOAR vendor. And ultimately, they were about automation and less about workflow. But they were born to sort of increase the amount of automation in a typical security operation team. By the way, you missed one more element in the history, and that's the UBA, User Behavior Analytics, which then later became known as UEBA, User and Entity Behavior Analytics. After SIM, but before SOAR, Yuba was born and then quickly, just, well, quickly, in three, four, five years, just collapsed into SIM. 
a lot of people, including myself, observed that ultimately Yuba was born because SIM vendors were asleep at the wheel. They were getting fat and happy on compliance money, and they sort of forgot that there are other fund security use cases. And ultimately, Yuba was born to apply deeper type of analytics, maybe machine learning, maybe other algorithms to detect certain attacks and to discover certain activities. And then SIM vendors kind of missed the boat. But then ultimately, they woke up to go over Yuba. Today, if you look at the SIM magic quadrant from Gartner, you'd see some vendors who started as a SIM, but you also see some vendors who started as a Yuba, but then built SIM capabilities. And that's an interesting journey. SIM and Yuba truly merged and became known as SIM. It's a funny uh, genealogy for sure when we look at it. Well, all these security technologies were advancing. The threat actors were too. We've seen the business side of cybercrime evolve to the point where there are access brokers, ransomware specialists, malware SaaS products. We also see a rising number of devices, IoT, OT, mobile, bring your own device, etc. So the attack service seems to be expanding exponentially as well as the number of people looking to exploit it. Is it going to require a fundamental shift in the way organizations are structured or the way that security is provided? Um. Attack surface changes for sure. I am not, I, I, I'm not automatically jumping at the attack surface expansion. I think it does expand in many cases. Uh, I think of a, a large enterprise IT, especially for the large enterprise that predates cloud, as a kind of a layer cake from mainframes to containers and beyond. So to me, the attack surface expands if you don't throw away all tech. If you adopt if it's the 1990s, you adopt client server, but you keep the mainframe. It's 2000s, you adopt virtualization, but you keep client server, including hardware, and you keep mainframe. And then 2010s, you adopt cloud, but you keep virtualization, and you keep mainframe. And so, yes, in this case, it expands. But if you, if you throw away some stuff, if you transcend certain technology layers, then, of course, attack surface would shrink because that, or shrink or change. So, to right. me, the the minor point, but 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 the point I do want to make is that attack surface changes, and if you're used to run a scan, find my servers, find my IP addresses, do something with that, and do it every quarter, then you're going to be surprised, <laughs> like really surprised by how things are done in the cloud, and then that that approach is just like frankly silly. That's why there are tools like attack surface management and others that allow you to sort of keep in touch with what are the assets, what is the attack surface. To me, the birth of attack surface management space, ASM, again, birth at Gartner, just as other things I mentioned, was a consequence of that sort of changing, evolving attack surface and people losing their traditional ways of dealing with that. So it's not so much the expansion, it's just the change is quite dramatic. And people who are sticking to the 1990s way of doing things end up in trouble or end up with major parts of their infrastructure outside of their, you know, visibility scope. It seems like this gives the advantage to new startups that are beginning with the new technology versus older companies that kind of have to advance and alter their operations to keep up. Correct. That is exactly the impression is that you, you, if you don't have the, uh, the old history, if you don't have the layered cake going back to mainframes, you may be better off. You, you may be better off and you probably are better off because you can apply new ways of thinking, new practices to the new infrastructure and never bother with old. Uh, as a funny aside, a lot of people uh, who are enamored with zero trust 
of course, start saying, yeah, you know, there's this vendor who offers zero trust in five minutes, and there's this other vendor who says that it takes time. And of course, if you work at Google, you join Google and you are given a laptop, right? And the laptop has no VPN client. And, and there, there isn't a VPN client on the laptop because, of course, Google has a robust, beautiful, secure, and effective zero trust system that we use every day. And it's very obvious. It's not a buzzword. It's a daily reality for tens of, well, for hundreds of thousands of people who work here. So yet the journey to that polished, beautiful, secure state took a while. And right. people say, oh, Google take time to get to that. But keep in mind that Google was also not a company with mainframes and, and, the, and, and the tech that predates Google's birth in the 90s, right? So it's almost like it took us some time without the legacy stack. Now imagine that you do have the legacy stack going back to 1970s and you want to adopt zero trust. It's going to take a while. And if it took us a good number of years, it would take you either a larger number of years or perhaps, you know, even more time. So mm -hmm. to me, that type of a reminder is that if you are mostly new, a lot of things would end up being faster and a lot of things would end up being more secure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we've been working with Chromebooks and, and GCP since the beginning, and it's it's made a lot of things that we didn't have to think about. Yes, and this is, by the way, as a final reminder, this is my go-to throwaway metaphor. If somebody says, a transformation, revolution, and I say, uh, well, actually, if you go to Chromebooks and software as a service, if your entire IT is Chromebooks and SaaS, uh, meaning you don't have any cloud infrastructure, you don't, use the, you don't use any IIS, you just use Chromebooks and SaaS, then maybe 97% of the whole cyber stuff just flushed down the toilet. There isn't, you, you're, mm -hmm. you're, I'm not saying Chromebooks and SaaS have solved security, no. You would have things, and you can think of some scenarios where you could you can end up in trouble. But the reduction is just dramatic. You you yes. are you're losing ransomware. You're losing much of the data theft. You're losing a lot of configuration mistakes surface. So you're kind of losing. Well, losing in this case is a good thing. You lose badness. You lose a lot of exposure. So you lose a lot of attack surface. So yeah, if you can do Chromebooks and SaaS, that's great. But admittedly, if you are a small bank in Belgium you probably are not going to switch to Chromebooks and SaaS in minutes or mm. even in years. Yeah. Yeah. Fundamental change in the way those places operate. Um, machine learning and artificial intelligence are at the forefront of everybody's minds right now. I think ChatGPT really changed what people think about what is possible. Are you seeing any interesting applications of the technology emerging? Yes. And uh, this is, um, this is, I, of course, I'll be very sort of self-serving and I'm going to make jokes about how we are talking about, you know, BART and its competitors. So uh, right. <laughs> the point is that there are interesting things in this area. And at RSA, which uh, at the time of recording, I just came back from, I kind of had this thought while I'm being bombarded by messages that, oh, this, this is revolutionary or AI security or some other people say, no, it's just a glorified autocomplete, a glorified spell checker. So there's a bit of a debate about how revolutionary that is. And ultimately, the idea that was born in my head is that the new types of AI, like generative AI, will be game-changing and will be revolutionary in a micro game. What I mean by this is that if, imagine the macro game is Hey, Bard, secure my enterprise. Yeah. That's, no, 
no, no, just no. <laughs> I don't think it's a little bit in the like, is this coming? Who knows? But is this today? No. But that revolution, changing the macro gaming security to me is not coming due to AI. Uh, there are people who are big fans of AI. I'm a fan of AI. I'm a positive. I'm I'm very positive on AI. So I still don't think it's revolutionary to a macro game. But deep in my heart, I think, or maybe even I know, that it is going to be revolutionary at a micro game in certain games. Not to go too much over Google launches. Uh, the fact that you can paste a script you found online on a malicious site into the into the tool. I, I talk about virus total code insight in this case, which we just launched. And the tool will tell you, oh, this script does this, and it's probably been written by that group. Like, this is reverse engineering, simple reverse engineering in moments by a person who doesn't know reverse engineering. So to me, this this is revolutionary to that game. And there are other small-scale or micro games that will change incredibly because of AI. But I don't think that it's going to change the security game. We'll still be fighting adversaries, human and otherwise, for years to come. And uh, security will still involve a lot of work by humans, by engineers. So in that sense, that's my current line of current level of thinking. Again, we're recording this two days after RSA, so I don't have any more profound thoughts than this. But I think that AI, specifically generative AI, will be game changing to a lot of micro games, but it won't change the macro game. Yeah, augment the capabilities of a single analyst to amplify their effectiveness. Uh, but dramatically. And sometimes yes. uh, sometimes it would change. It would enable people to do things that they couldn't think of. And again, somebody asked me about that at RSA, and I said, well, wait a second. You are telling me that it's quantitative difference. Do you think flying to New York from San Francisco versus walking to New York from San Francisco is quantitative? And if you are a math purist, you would say, yeah, it's just travel time. But a normal person would say, no, that's kind of dumb. If I have to walk to New York, I'm not going to walk to New York. But if I can fly to New York for 400 bucks, I'm going to fly to New York. So it is an, it's quantitative, but it's also enabling things that I couldn't think of. I'm not going to learn reverse engineering. And not to say that I'm too old for that, but my interests are just elsewhere. But if I can get a tool that gives me quick access to reverse engineer-like talents, I want that. And this is, this is new capability. This is not just qualitative, I'll triage alerts faster. So that's why, to me, some of this stuff is game-changing. Very insightful. Um, the last one I have for you is the one that I ask of everybody that comes on the show. It can be as wide or as narrow as you want. Do you have any predictions for the future? Predictions for the future. Okay, so I'm going to be boring. And uh, the reason I'm going to be boring is that because I want to win. <laughs> uh, and and I, I, I'm going to use this approach to prediction that is that I learned many years ago by reading a book by Richard Feynman, the physicist. And there's a story in one of his books. I think it's, uh, you sh surely you're joking, Mr. Feynman, or one of the others, where the story goes like this. And I, I read the book a good number of years ago, so I may, I may, may corrupt some of the details. So people were playing, Feynman and his friends were playing and predicting some events. And Feynman was winning a lot more than others. And people said, Richard, Richard, do you have some kind of magical quantum powers, because he was a quantum physicist, that allows you to predict the future? And he was kind of joking and not telling them. And ultimately, later on, he told them how he was predicted. He was always predicting that things would stay the same as they are now. And if you predict, if you predict in such an extrapolatory, boring format, 
you'd be very boring and you wouldn't be fun at parties and you would never be known as an innovator and visionary, but you'd be right more often. Right. So if you wake me up at the AM and says, Anton, will there be mainframes in 2030? And I would say, are there mainframes now? Yes. So yes, there will be mainframes in 2030. So this is silly. And again, it's not exciting. It's not, but it's also kind of a method that ultimately works. Um, at Gartner, I learned that the most powerful force in the universe, in IT universe, is actually inertia. Is that if somebody is struggling with patching windows in 1998, there's almost a certainty there would be somebody struggling with patching windows in 2018. 2028 is roughly five years away. Are you willing to bet that in 2028, nobody would suffer from patching windows? Are you going to bet that? No, I'm not going to take that bet. No, you're not going <laughs> to take that. Exactly. Yeah. So, and again, I am. It's it's funny, it's kind of sad, it's a little boring, but ultimately it's sort of our world. And so if you have challenges with false positives with detection, will they have challenges with false positives with whether we are fully enabled by AI, future types of AI, whatever else? I bet yes. The answer is still yes. Recently, somebody showed me the slide they crafted for some presentation. And it's about security operations challenges. I looked at the slide and I thought, that's my slide from 2003. And this person, I don't think he was even born in 2003. <laughs> uh, so he put together a slide based on his best knowledge of security operation challenges in 2023. And I swear I could have made this slide 20 years ago. It looked exactly the same. Talent shortages, too many alerts, confusing things. I don't know how to triage things. Uh, I can't, I, I don't have enough money to store data. It's the same. Yeah. So uh, while we can joke about how containers aren't VMs and VMs aren't mainframes and cloud isn't one huge mainframe in the sky, but we will see things that linger. And things that linger will cause pain. So in our beloved domain of cyber, things that linger will cause problems. And they would cause problems now and they would cause problems five years from now. And then I... When people say, Anton, surely you don't mean using just old knowledge is fine. And I would say, no, but name one security problem that we solved for good. And of course, somebody shows up who is way older than me and says, Anton, they were typewriters. And in a typewriter, there was a ribbon. And you can steal the ribbon and you can figure out what was typed on the typewriter. That problem is solved. To which I say, you win. There is a security problem we solved. It's the theft of typewriter ribbons with the purpose of figuring out what was typed on the writer and thus stealing confidential info. You win, but you don't really win because if you go a little bit younger years than typewriters, you know, not the 50s, it's hard. Buffer overflows, late 80s, SQL injection, early 2000s, password guessing, 80s, misconfiguration. I don't know what year, 70s. Yeah. And these are all top issues. Look look at M-Trends, look at Threat Horizons, look at other threat reports. Uh, you are, this is, our life is choked full of this stuff. Yeah. And this stuff is not born in Kubernetes and microservices, cloud era. It was all born before. So, okay, I guess maybe I, I can be called curmudgeon uh, now, but I when I predict, 
I kind of bet on the past things coming from behind and biting us. And that's what I would fear. I would fear this more than I would fear uh, AI taking over the world or some other problems, like some other mm-hmm. futuristic problems. To me, the past would, would hurt you more. Past have a way, past have a lot more ways to hurt you than the future. Uh, that reminds me a lot of a quote from, I think it's Noam Chomsky. History doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. Yes, and that's that's in, along the same vein. But ultimately, sometimes insecurity seems to actually repeat itself. <laughs> it's not. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today, Dr. Shavakan. It was a great conversation, and I really appreciate it. Perfect. Thank you very much. This was fun. And that concludes episode 30 of the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast. If you have any feedback or ideas for future topics, please send an email to defenders at limacharlie.io. You can access the intel we talk about on the show in real time and join the conversation on the Lima Charlie community Slack channel at slack.limacharlie.io. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with someone or leaving a rating or review. And don't forget to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening from. Thanks for listening in. We'll see you on the next episode.